Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do I. I created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for over six years, and I personally have achieved a 99th percentile score on an official GMAT exam and helped hundreds of students get into the business schools of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since I think the world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. And if this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying for the GMAT so that together we can make this process as easy and painless for as many people as we possibly can. Let's go. Let's talk about the basics of GMAT quant. GMAT quant is the most important aspect of your overall score if you're applying to a top 100 business school. Why is that? Well, most admissions officers still consider the MBA a very quantitative heavy degree, and so they want to see a high enough quant score that lets them believe that you'll be able to quote-unquote handle the coursework at their program. Now, if you didn't know, you actually get five different scores when you go to take the GMAT. You get an individual quant score, an individual verbal score, an individual essay score, an individual integrated reasoning score, and a total score, which is the familiar 200 to 800 scale. So when someone says, I got a 650 on the GMAT or a 700 on the GMAT, they're talking about that overall score. However, it's only the quantitative and verbal sections that contribute to that overall score. Your essay and your integrated reasoning scores are separate from that. So that's another reason the quantitative score is extremely important, it will be a big driver of your overall score. Let's talk about the format of the quant section. You're going to see 31 questions in 62 minutes. Now, that's actually good news, believe it or not, because the test used to be, up until a couple years ago, quite a bit longer. It was, I think, 37 questions in 65 minutes, if my memory serves me. And it's great that they have made it shorter. It's better for everyone. The test is a little bit easier, I think. And the, the way they've cut the number of questions down is actually by eliminating experimental questions. There used to be quite a few more experimental questions, and those were for the test writer's research and did not count for your score. However, you did not know which ones were experimental questions. So, for example, when I took the GMAT years ago, I answered 37 questions. I think probably eight of which or something didn't count for my score. So these days, you're probably only seeing a a few experimental questions. I'm not sure how they've been able to reduce that by so much, but it's fantastic that they have, and we should all be very grateful for that. You'll see two different types of questions in the quantitative section. You'll see problem-solving questions, which are probably a very familiar format to you. These are standard multiple-choice questions with five options, A, B, C, D, and E, and you'll select one option only. There are no multiple-option questions on the quant section of the GMAT. The other type of question you'll see is called data sufficiency. And if you haven't done a lot of GMAT study yet, data sufficiency is probably a very new and unfamiliar question format that warrants a little bit of discussion and quite a bit of strategizing. So I I think I'm going to devote all of next week's episode to data sufficiency and how you want to tackle it, how you want to think about it, a couple keys to making your life easier there. But because there's enough to talk about for the quant section overall, I'm going to shelve that for a week or so. Now, quickly, the the split of problem-solving versus data sufficiency is valuable to know. You'll probably see one to three more problem-solving questions than you will data sufficiency. So it's close to half and half, 
Um, but out of 31 questions, you're, you're likely to see 16 or so problem solving and 14 to 15 data sufficiency. 16 or 17 problem solving, 14 to 15 data sufficiency, something like that. Now, the section is not divided by, by problem type, which is helpful to know. So you might see three problem solving questions in a row, and then your next two could be data sufficiency, and then you might switch back and forth between data sufficiency and problem solving for a while, and then four more problem solving in a row. It's essentially randomized in terms of when you're getting problem solving questions and when you're getting data sufficiency questions. Now, the last thing we should talk about in terms of overall format is that the quant section is one of two sections on the exam that adapts to your ability in real time. That means if you get a question right on the quant section, your next question will be more difficult. If you get a question wrong, then the next question will be a little bit easier. Now, there is quite a bit of strategizing to do around that type of test because that basically means that the number of questions you're getting right and wrong is less important, significantly less important on the GMAT than it is on other exams. But where you're getting those questions right and wrong and what types of questions you're getting right and wrong is, is extremely important on the GMAT. Now, when I say what types of questions, I don't mean by content category. And I'll go through all the content categories later in this episode. But by content category, I mean something like geometry versus algebra. So whether you get a lot of geometry questions right or zero geometry questions right does not affect your score in the eyes of the scoring algorithm. And that's very, very important. So for example, if you do have a weakness area like probability or geometry, let's say, and you ended up missing every geometry question on the GMAT, there's no extra penalty for, for missing a bunch of geometry questions. And the algorithm does not know that you are missing geometry questions in the sense that it will try to capitalize on that or penalize you and say, oh, you're missing a lot of geometry questions. Here's eight more geometry questions. Ha ha ha. Like that, that fortunately does not happen. Uh, Big Brother is not watching you as you take the GMAT. Thank goodness. <laughs> but what I mean by different types of questions is varying difficulty levels. So if you're getting easy questions wrong, that's going to hurt a little more than if you're getting hard questions wrong. If you're getting hard questions right, that helps a little bit more than if you're just getting easy questions right. So again, there is a great deal of strategizing around how to, to develop your abilities for a test like that and to, to capitalize on the way the test works instead of what so many people do, which is just treating it like a regular test and hoping for the best. Um, Again, that, that strategy is definitely beyond the scope of this particular episode, but if you're very curious right now, I, I will probably do future episodes on the scoring algorithm, but if you're very curious right now, there is a video on my website at thegmatstrategy.com called How to Achieve Your Dream GMAT Score in Half the Normal Time with Half the Normal Effort. And in that video, I go through some of the basics of the scoring algorithm. I don't go into the intricacies of the algorithm. I only do that in my class called the GMAT Strategy, which is available on the same website if you feel that that is worth it to you. Um, but I would strongly recommend that you go at least watch the first half of that video so that you can get at least a basic understanding of what the algorithm is about and what you are trying to achieve and what you're not trying to achieve when you're taking the GMAT quant section and the GMAT verbal. GMAT quant and GMAT verbal are the only adaptive sections of the exam. The essay is not adaptive, uh, perhaps obviously, and the integrated reasoning section is not adaptive, despite the fact that it kind of looks like it is. So getting back to the point here, the logistics of an adaptive test, you must answer the question that you're looking at in order to see the next question on the quant section. And that's true of verbal as well. You also cannot leave a question blank. You must answer the question you're on to see the next question. And you cannot go back once you've committed uh, to a, a question answer. And psychologically, when you combine that with the fact that you're getting harder questions when you get things right and easier questions when you get things wrong, 
that those those several elements combine to make the GMAT an extraordinarily psychologically demanding test. So if you feel much more stressed out during the GMAT than you do up taking other exams, that is completely normal. And the sad part of that is, uh, although there are many things we can do to reduce that stress, we may never be able to eliminate it. And a lot of your prep, especially taking practice tests and doing time set practice, is going to be focused on developing strategies for managing that stress. You can definitely get way, way better at managing the stress of the GMAT, although it's very, very difficult to eliminate the stress of the GMAT. It's, it's kind of like a Zen thing <laughs> where you, you almost have to embrace the struggle of the GMAT in order to, uh, to get your best performance out of yourself. Fortunately, most other areas of life do not work that way, <laughs> but the GMAT is, uh, is very hard psychologically, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing poorly. And like I said, if you check out that algorithm video on my website, that should make a lot more sense all of a sudden. More on that in the future. Now, some good news here. <laughs> some good news. <clears throat> despite, the, despite the fact that it can be psychologically demanding to take the GMAT, the good news about the adaptive algorithm and the fact that it's less about how many questions you're getting right and more about the difficulty levels of questions you're getting right is that it's possible to achieve an extremely high score and still miss a very good number of questions, like pretty high if you think about it percentage-wise. Um, most people, around 90 to 98% of us, are getting about 60% of questions right and about 40% of questions wrong on pretty much every GMAT we take. In fact, if, if you've taken some practice exams, you can go back and, and check your accuracy on your lower scores versus your higher scores. You'll probably find there isn't a crazy difference between your lower scores and your higher scores. Now, that's not true across the entire spectrum of the, the scoring uh, scale. Uh, at the very, very peak, it, you have less margin for error. At the very, very bottom, you are probably missing uh, more than 60% of questions. But again, that's probably only 2 to maybe 10% of test takers. So mo the vast majority of us are going to be missing quite a few questions. And that is good news because it means that if you do have weakness areas, I was kind of alluding to this earlier, such as geometry, you might be able to get away with not being very good at that. Uh, you will definitely want to improve as much as you possibly can in your prep, but if there are certain weak points you have, the GMAT is a, a great test to take versus a test like the GRE. And I'll, I'll probably do a full episode soon on GMAT versus GRE, but the GRE is based on accuracy, so it's it's much more difficult to get around having holes in your, your content knowledge or just your natural abilities, whereas the GMAT is a test that really allows you to play to your strengths and, and downplay your weaknesses a little bit more, which I, th I think is good. So just to give you some idea of how many questions you can miss and still get a great score, so I got a 49 on the math section, that's two points shy of a perfect score, and I probably missed about eight to nine questions on my, my quant section. So you think that's maybe like 65-ish percent accuracy, something like that? which on a regular school test is like not that great. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, sorry. I was scaling that for the, the new format. So out of 31 questions, I would have missed six to eight. Out of 37, I probably missed like 12, which is quite a few questions if you think about a score that was almost perfect. Um, even people getting perfect scores, 50s and 51s, they're probably missing around six, maybe even seven questions, depending on where they miss those questions in the section. Sometimes as, as few as five. But if you, if you think about it percentage-wise, that's still like not amazing in terms of percentage. So hopefully that can reduce your stress a little bit and just help you start to strategize around how you want to take the, the GMAT overall, especially the quant section. 
so that you're not going in there with, with the mistaken impression that you're expected to get every single question right. And that's the nature of an adaptive test. The test writers know that if they continue to give you harder and harder questions as you get questions right, <laughs> eventually you're going to start missing those. And that's kind of the point of the way the algorithm places candidates in the scoring spectrum. Again, check out the video on my website if you want more on that. Now, in terms of what you do want to do on, on the GMAT, because you have this adaptive thing going around and it's, it's less about getting tons of questions right and more about where you get those questions right, etc., the main two things that you want to be thinking about, when you, especially if you're starting your studies, is avoiding getting sucked into spending too much time on questions, especially questions that you probably will not get right. And then second, making sure that you are not rushing through questions you do know how to do and getting those wrong. So getting high scores on the GMAT, it's, it's, less, it's not about getting every question right. It's about making sure you find the questions you can get right and ensuring doing everything you possibly can to get those and then finding the questions that you don't think you can get right and not spending too much time on those. That's a big problem. Most of us are going to get sucked into at least one or two questions and spend four or five, six minutes on it many times without even knowing it, which is kind of scary. So I want to give you some tools to help with that. And the best exercise I can avoid is something I call the one, two, three exercise or the one, two, three rule of GMAT questions. And you can go up to three minutes on a GMAT question. You're supposed to average two minutes per question, like we were talking about at the beginning, but you can go up to three minutes on questions if you feel that that extra minute is warranted. Now, I'll talk about this more in a second, but keep in mind, every time you go beyond two minutes, you're borrowing time from a future question, and that may be warranted if, you're, if there's a high likelihood you're going to get the question you're currently working on correct. If there's a high likelihood you can get it correct, then it's worth investing a little bit more. If there's a low likelihood that you're going to get it correct, then you want to practice divesting from that question, cutting your losses, and moving on to the next battle that seems a little more winnable. So let's talk about the one, two, three rule and talk about how you can integrate it into your practice. When you're doing official guide questions or questions from an official source, at the beginning of your prep, you're going to want to be doing more individual questions as you focus on content and fewer sets of questions. As you get later in your prep, closer to your test, and when you've already gone through all the basic content at least once, then you can start doing more timed set practice where you're maybe doing five or ten questions in a row without stopping to check your answer. Now, why do you want to practice more single questions early on in your prep? Well, early on in your prep, if you're making mistakes on a certain question type, you want to correct that mistake before you do four other problems or 10 other problems making that same mistake. Because if you do sets of, of 10 where you're making a mistake or doing something wrong that's causing you to miss questions that you should be getting right, you don't want to practice doing it wrong. You don't want to do nine in a row of, of it incorrect. So if there is a mistake, you want to correct it. And then on the next several problems that you do, you want to practice the good habit, if that makes sense. Now, later in your prep, it's more important to adjust to the stress of the exam, like I was talking about. So doing sequential problems, let's say 10 questions in 20 minutes becomes a little bit more valuable. So how do you use the one, two, three rule? Well, let's say I'm going to do a practice question. And let's just say, for example's sake, I'm going to do a divisibility question. So I read the problem and I want to get an initial assessment. How, do, how does this problem land for me just at, on the first impression? It's like a very superficial assessment of the problem. I might make that assessment or that judgment before I even start reading the question. For example, on a geometry question, if I see a diagram, do I feel, do I feel comfortable with this diagram? Do I automatically feel uncomfortable with this diagram? And you want to you wanna just check in with your instincts there in the first moment that the problem pops up on the screen. 
as you're reading it, what type of question is this? Have I seen a question like this before? Can I easily associate this with something I've seen in my practice? Or is this something brand new that holds some unknowns? And I think throughout this example, a, a great analogy is, is dating. And it's very much like when you meet someone for the first time and you're assessing whether they're a potential mate or not. You're thinking, am I instantly attracted to this person? Am I, am I blown away? Like, wow, I, I really want to get to know you. I want to understand what you're all about. Or are you looking at them and you're like, wow, this is a really attractive person, but there's just something about them that's just, just a no. Like, it's just maybe the way they dress, maybe the way they wear their hair, some kind of stylistic aspects of their appearance. Again, this is a very superficial judgment, but we do it all the time when we meet people. You know, is this someone who seems like they're my type of person who I might want to be friends with or maybe even get involved with? Or is this the type of person that, unless they surprise me, this conversation is probably going to be very short? So you want to think about that when you're first encountering a GMAT question. What's your initial impression, good or bad? And then you're going to adjust that impression as you get into the first minute. So this is the one of the one, two, three rule. So in that first minute, it's sort of like your first date with this problem, where you're sitting down with the problem one-on-one -on -one and you're getting to know it. And you're just sort of figuring out, is there any potential here at all? Within that first minute, you're reading the question, you're probably taking some notes on what's been given, and you're trying to decide whether you have a strategy immediately or not. Now, if you don't have a strategy, then you might start leaning toward just letting go of the problem early, because every time you answer a question in a minute or less, whether you get it right or wrong, you're actually picking a minute up that you can invest on a future question that maybe you feel a little bit better about. And again, the dating analogy is good. If you go on a first date with someone and you're not feeling so great after that date, then by not going out with that person, you're opening yourself up to the opportunity to date other people that you might be more compatible with. Whereas if you continue to date that person, <clears throat> that's taking social time away that you could be meeting other people. So there are good times to do that, and then there are bad times to do that. And the same thing holds true with GMAT questions. Because again, it's very unlikely you're going to get every single question right. So if you adjust your thinking and you start going into the test thinking, well, I'm probably going to miss at least a few of these. Maybe I can find the five, five or six questions that I just know right off the bat are not going to be a good fit for me and just not waste too much time trying to get them right. It's a big psychological adjustment, but it can make a tremendous, tremendous difference in your success overall on the exam. So within that first minute, you're taking notes, you're trying to figure out if things are going well. Now, after that first minute, if you feel like there's any potential at all that you might be able to get some value out of this question by eliminating some answer choices, or maybe even get the question right because you have a theory about what a good solution might be, then you definitely want to go up to the second minute because by in those first two minutes, you're, you're not taking away any time from other problems. You have two minutes to allocate to this question and you can feel free to use that to get as far as you possibly can in that time. Now, after that first minute, things do get a little more serious, though, because you don't want to go into that second minute if there isn't at least some potential. So again, I'll encourage you, even when you're practicing individual problems and you're not on the exam, if within the first minute you're like, wow, I have no idea what's going on in this question, just think, okay, if this were the exam, I would now guess and I'll pick A and... I would then move on to the question. Now, when you're not in the exam and you're just doing individual question practice, then you can pause the timer, you can work on the question as long as you want, and you can learn as much as you, you, you possibly can from that question. But I just want to make sure that if you're going to be studying for this thing, you're integrating some time pressure from the beginning of your prep as much as possible, um, but, but also giving yourself time to learn from each individual question that you do. So let's say you do go into that second minute. That's kind of like your second date with another human being. So you're going to be talking a little bit more 
seriously, um, you have a little bit of rapport built already, and you're going to be assessing the problem or the, the candidate on kind of a deeper level where you're thinking like, okay, this is, this is something I'm serious about. I do want to get this question right. I want to put my best fo- foot forward. So you're going to be making sure you're doing really good scratch work techniques. You're going to be making sure that you're setting yourself up for success. If you do end up liking this person or you do end up liking this problem, you're building a solid foundation um, and making sure that you're being organized with all your, your work on the math side. Now, when you hit two minutes, that's when things get really serious because now you're taking away from a future problem. And so you really want to be intentional at that two minute mark about deciding. So what I'd recommend is set a one minute timer when you're doing a practice question and then make a decision. Am I, is another minute likely to pay off with this problem? If it is, or you think there's a possibility, then you'll go up to two minutes and you can be pretty free giving that second minute to questions. Now, once you hit two minutes, you have to get really, really serious and think, okay, is another minute more than 50% likely to pay off? And if it's more than 50% likely to pay off, and you have to be honest with yourself, and you'll develop this sensibility more and more as you study, then you should spend that extra minute and go up to three minutes and see if you can get the question right. If at two minutes, it's a less than 50% chance that you are going to get the question right, you, you really want to practice letting go of that question and just bailing out, picking a random answer and not letting it get to you. And that's something that most of us just don't have a lot of practice with because so many tests we've taken up until this point in our life have been based on accuracy. Now, the better you get at that, the easier the GMAT will be because like I said, most of us are missing probably 30 to 40% of questions, which is quite a few if, if you think about it. So it really becomes an exercise in missing questions artfully. And again, not, just training yourself not to go long on questions that are unlikely to pay off. And this is a great way to do it. Now then you'll set a third minute if you deem that there's more than a 50% chance that you're going to get the question right. And then you can go all the way up to three minutes. At three minutes, I would strongly recommend always conditioning yourself to guess no matter what. Because even if you're getting questions right beyond the three minute range, that's really one point for the price of two. And that is very unlikely to pay off for you long term in your GMAT studies. So... Just to recap, you want to set a one-minute timer when you start a question. When that goes off, make a decision. You can be pretty loose with that second minute if you're like, I'm pretty sure I can make some more progress in the next minute. And then you can go all the way up to two minutes. When it's been two minutes, you want to get a little more serious and say, okay, is this more than 50% likely to pay off or less than 50% likely to pay off? If it's less, you practice guessing. And if it's more, you practice going up to your third minute. If you're ever hitting the third minute, you always practice guessing. And it's totally fine on the the GMAT itself to spend three minutes and then realize, oh, I thought I knew how to do this in three minutes. I actually don't. And I need to get out, out of this question as quickly as possible, cut my losses, and move on to the next problem. That's totally, totally fine to do. If you have questions about this strategy, feel free to reach out to me at the GMAT strategy on Facebook, at the GMAT strategy on Instagram, at the GMAT strategy on LinkedIn at the GMAT strategy on YouTube and uh, slash the GMAT strategy on Reddit. And I'm, I'm more than happy to answer questions if, if you have them. But my hope is that one, two, three rule will really help you start to get a gut feel for how you're doing on the exam. Now, one question I get asked a lot is, should I be checking the clock on the actual GMAT and looking at, you know, one minute, two minute, three minute? I don't recommend that. You should have some overall timing benchmarks, like 10 questions every 20 minutes. Something simple like that is fine. If you're interested in a more tactical approach, check out my class, the GMAT strategy that I already mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, where I give you my sort of um, what I think is the best way to, ma- to manage your time on the test. Uh, but not every single person necessarily needs that. So I, I trust your judgment as to whether you think that's worth it for you or not. But if you're, if you're really curious, um, I would encourage you to check it out. 
Um, no, you shouldn't be checking the clock on every single question or every minute or something on the test. That's why you're doing that in your practice. That's why you're setting that one minute, two minute, three minute timer in your practice so that you have a gut feel of when a minute has gone by and you're thinking, uh, I'm not feeling so great after the first minute on this question. I think I should just bail out. And you can start to trust your instincts a little bit more on the test. If you're getting in that two minute range, you're like, uh, it's probably been two minutes. I'm not feeling really great about spending more time on this. I thought I had a strategy. That strategy didn't pan out. I'm not really sure what an alternate strategy would be. So I just need to guess right here. Or sometimes going, uh, it's probably been two minutes, but I'm pretty sure this strategy is going to pay off. I just have to do like three sets of long division or do a bunch of hand computation or something like that. And then I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it right. You want to condition yourself to be comfortable going long on that problem and going up to three minutes. And then you want to have that gut feel of when it's been three minutes and you just think, ah, even if I can probably get this right, it's not worth it. It's just too expensive of a point. And so I'm going to give it away. So hopefully that makes sense. I know that's getting deep into that strategic thinking that I was talking about where there's quite a bit of intricacy to, uh, but hopefully that gets you a good leg up on your competition on test day. So let's, let's wrap up by just talking about the content tested and giving you some final recommendations. So there are several different areas tested on the GMAT quant section, and it's basically just math up through in the United States, what we would call high school level geometry. So the, the math concepts are not super intricate. There's no calculus, there's no trigonometry, um, there are no imaginary numbers, nothing like that. It's all what we would call relatively basic math fundamentals, things like algebra, fraction computation, decimal computation, properties of integers, properties of divisibility, and geometry. And there's an important point to make there because even though there is like quite a bit of content refreshing to do for most people, so don't be afraid to spend a month to three months just going through the basic content and, and relearning how to do long multiplication and relearning the area of a rhombus and stuff like that. That's really, really important to spend that time. But the important thing to realize is that even though you do need to know all those basics, the test is actually not designed to be a math test. It's designed to be a quote unquote reasoning test. And so they're just going to use those basic math concepts to test your reasoning skills. And that's why one of the best recommendations I can make is make sure you have a, at least a copy of the official guide for GMAT review. Because the, the types of questions you're going to be answering on the GMAT are not really the types of questions most of us are used to answering in a regular math class. So you could know all the GMAT content and material, but still not get a particularly good GMAT score, which is very, very puzzling for a lot of people. And that's part of the reason I created the GMAT strategy in the first place, because I just noticed there are all these qualified business school candidates out out there, they're studying really hard, they're learning all the material, yet they're not able to get credit for that material on test day because there's there's so much strategizing that that comes with this exam. And the deeper you get into it, the, the more you'll you'll realize the truth, I think, of that statement. So the reason I recommend the official guide is it's it's the really one of the only sources of questions written by the people who will write your actual GMAT, and those questions have a unique flavor that are very tricky. Um, there's there's a lot of intricacy involved on a question-by-question -question basis. We'll talk about that more next week when we talk about data sufficiency. And there are many, many ways that they try to take advantage of certain assumptions you might have about math questions to make you get questions wrong. Um, and they're very good at making easy questions look hard and hard questions look easy. So it's, it's a, again, a very psychologically demanding test. Uh, there's a lot of strategy that goes into doing well on it. And if, if you get a copy of the official guide and you do practice questions out of that, you'll be a hundred times more prepared than if you just go through a set of books or you don't do any real 
official GMAT questions in your prep. Now, you don't necessarily have to go through the entire official guide, although that's, that's a huge accomplishment if you do. I think you, your, your learning will come more from how much review of questions you do and how well you understand the questions you have attempted versus just doing lots of practice questions. Doing lots of practice questions, unfortunately, usually does not move people's scores. It's about the right balance of enough problems, but also enough deep review of those. And I'll, I'll go super, super in-depth on how to review problems in, in the future, in future episodes. I've also talked actually at length about that in my early episodes about how to start your prep and how to accelerate your timeline, stuff like that. Now, let's, let's give you one more recommendation for the official guide. If you can afford it, I would strongly recommend a product from Manhattan Prep called the GMAT Navigator because the explanations, particularly for the math section of the official guide, are not very good. And the GMAT Navigator is basically a collection of much, much better answer explanations. I think it's around 50 US dollars. If that's within your budget, I would strongly recommend that. If you have access to a great in-person or online class or a tutor, a one-on-one tutor, and you can afford that, I would strongly recommend that as well. Again, because there's just so many strategic intricacies to doing well on GMAT Quant. It's such an important part of your admission decision. And you should try to get as much help and as much information about those sections as you possibly can. Now, last tip I'll give you for doing well on the math section, because it's so much about not missing questions you know how to do, is make sure that you start from the beginning of your studies doing quality scratch work. And I've, I've talked about this before. I will talk about it at length much, much more just because it's such a huge issue for people. Your scratch work should be so clear that another person could tell how you thought through the problem just by looking at your scratch work without having to talk to you. So make an honest assessment of yourself when you're doing problems and ask, is my scratch work actually that clear? And if it's not, start making the effort to make it that clear. It's okay if it's not there immediately. If you have to do some untimed practice to improve your scratch work and then put the time pressure uh, back into your prep, that is completely fine to do. I routinely do that with my in-person class students and my tutoring students all the time. I'll tell people, hey, look, take a week forget about the timer and just make sure that your scratch work is ultra clear because you're going into the test and you're missing four five six questions every time that you should be getting right and that's totally deflating your score pulling the rug out from under your score so i really really hope that that helps make gmat quant a little bit easier for you and that you have a good understanding if you're just starting out you have basically a professional level understanding of what's what is key as far as doing well on gmat quant goes As always, my greatest hope is that this material will make your studies as easy and as painless as possible. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the exam, head to my website, thegmatstrategy.com, and check out my video presentation on how to achieve your goal score in half the normal time and with half the normal effort. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe and stay positive and stay consistent with your studies. I'll talk to you soon.